Uh, if, you have a, if you have a Bible you want to open up uh, to Genesis chapter 18, it's a hard copy, or you've got a, a version of the Bible on your phone, either one's good. We're going we're gonna to work with the second half of that chapter this morning, and over the first 30 minutes-ish of our service, uh, we, we prayed for the opening of our service, we prayed for those who were being baptized in our previous services, we prayed for those who... Uh, we're dedicating children. We prayed for those families. We prayed for those children. We pray after we read God's word. We pray at the close of the service. And the question would be, why do we do that? The most popular scripture in the Bible about prayer is from James chapter 5. It says that the uh, prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. The Maybe the more traditional way that you've heard that is that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Or if you're a King James person, the prayers of a righteous person availeth much. Um, which, which makes me ask like some immediate questions, both theological in nature, but also very personal in nature. So does, does that mean that my prayers change God's mind if they are powerful and, e- and effective? Are they however we think about the decision-making processes of God, are my prayers altering or changing the outcomes of his decision-making or his plans? And if so, does that mean that God is not actually sovereign? Sovereign meaning that he is powerful and in control of all things in the world. And if my prayers don't change God's mind and he is sovereign, then what is the point of praying at all? Like why spend my time doing that? And then on the more personal sort of level, I think we read a passage of scripture like James 5, 16, and we say to ourselves, well, how come it seems as though my prayer doesn't always work? Like I'm, I'm praying for things, and those things aren't happening. So does that mean that my prayer is ineffective and, and doesn't work? And if that's the case, does that mean that I am not righteous? Like, is it my level of righteousness that needs to somehow increase so that my prayers could be powerful and effective or so that my prayers could availeth much? Like, what, what does all of that mean? We may not provide, you know, direct, explicit, sort of clear answers to each one of those questions this morning, but as we work through our passage today, uh, I think we will certainly hit on all of those themes. And so if you have Genesis chapter 18 open there in front of you, I'm going to read from verse 16 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 33. It says this, The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to see them off. Then the Lord said, Should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Abraham stepped forward and said, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? 
The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? He replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then he spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. He replied, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then he said, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He replied, I will not destroy it on account of 20. Then he said, let my Lord not be angry and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I I pray this morning that you would open our hearts and minds so that we can see the truth of what it is that you have to say to us here. God, would you teach us something about who you are? Would you help us to see the beauty and the reality of your character? God, would you teach us something about the the power and the purposes of prayer as it relates to your plans in the world. And God, would you do all of that for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna kind of work through this in three stages and it it really comes from three statements within the passage. The first one is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. And so our starting place is going to be with, we gotta start with something about the reality of sin here. Then the next sort of key statement is when Abraham says, won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? So we'll talk about the character of God. And then in the back and forth in some different ways, Abraham says something to the effect of, since I have ventured to speak, or if you would let me speak one more time. So we'll we'll finish by talking about both the power and the purpose of prayer. So verses 16 through 21. At the beginning of Genesis chapter 18, last week when we were together, we saw Abraham's friendship with God. In the first portion in the second half of Genesis chapter 18, sort of fleshes that out or illustrates a piece of that friendship. So God in verse 17 speaks, but it's self-deliberative. Then the Lord said, should I hide what I am about to do from Abraham? We've seen God do this sort of internal thinking before, however it is that we picture either the, the, the heart of God or the mind of God. In Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel account, he did some self-deliberating. He's doing the same thing here. He says, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? And the answer to that question is no. The reason that God then gives or the evidence comes starting in verse 18. And it's all about Abraham's covenant friendship with God. God says, Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen or known him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Based on this covenant relationship that God has with Abraham, God 
has promised to bless Abraham and through him to bless all the nations of the earth. That's verse 18. And then verse 19, God says that in response, Abraham himself is going to keep the way of the Lord, but he's also going to teach those who come after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. And, just. and so the answer to the Lord's internal question about sharing his plans with Abraham is no, I shouldn't keep those a secret. I can share them with my friend. We read from John 15 at the close of last week's service, but it's worth going back to this morning. Like Abraham, all who have been granted covenant righteousness, which we have thanks to God's grace through faith in Jesus. Everyone who has that is friends with Almighty God. And we said last week that we should never lose the wonder of that. That was true last week. That's still true this week. That's going to be true for you, brother or sister, in Christ next week and every single day for the rest of eternity, not just for the rest of your life. And here's how Jesus describes what it is what it is or what it entails to be God's friend. In John 15, he says, I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. And so God begins to converse and share with Abraham here precisely because Abraham has friendship with God thanks to his covenant righteousness. So then in verse 20, that internal sort of self-deliberative conversation that God is having becomes external. And he says to Abraham, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. Their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. There's one Hebrew root word that appears twice in those two verses. In verse 20, it's rendered as the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 21, it is, see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. The Hebrew root word in both of those places is zeaka. means outcry. Typically, it's used when there is a cry coming from someone who has been oppressed or mistreated. Typically, when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, even colloquially in our larger culture, we think of sodomy, which would be the particularly sexual nature of their sin as it is portrayed in Genesis chapter 19. And Genesis chapter 19 certainly gives us an illustrative piece of Sodom and Gomorrah's sin or their sinfulness, but it doesn't give us the whole picture and it's this word, zeaka, outcry, that paints the picture for us. It's used to describe the outcry of the oppressed or the mistreated. So in Genesis 4.10, in the Cain and Abel section, God says, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. He's been mistreated. Exodus chapter 2, Israelites are in slavery in Egypt we're told that after a long time, the king of Egypt died and the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out and their cry for help because of their difficult labor ascended to the Lord. They're being oppressed, mistreated. Deuteronomy chapter 24 says, do not op oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. You are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he's poor and depends on them. Otherwise, he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be held guilty. The same Hebrew root word appears in similar contexts eight different times in Jeremiah. 
So whatever is going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, it has to include some sort of social evil that entails the mistreatment, the oppression against poor and needy peoples there, which is something that God stands against because treatment like that is unjust. But it isn't the only way that scripture helps us understand the full scope of what's happening in Sodom. In the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel actually speaks directly about what was going on in Sodom. Ezekiel is telling Israel why they're experiencing the judgment that they are, which is exile from their homeland. And he tells them that they're more guilty than Sodom. He says, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not behaved as your daughters have. Now this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, plenty of food and comfortable security, but did not support the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable acts before me. So I removed them when I saw this. You, you get sort of the full picture, both of with the word outcry, you get the full picture of what happens in Genesis 19, and you get an added piece here, that there's like this spirit of pride, a heart of pride or haughty. And so what is the list of things against Sodom and Gomorrah here? They're prideful, they're oppressing and mistreating some group of people, and they do detestable acts. That's in the last part there of Ezekiel chapter 16. Genesis Genesis 19 is going to sort of portray that for us. And so when God decides to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, all of that to say this, he's doing so because of the completeness of, the, the like fullness, the totality of their sinfulness, both their sinful behavior, but also their sin as a thing that humanity possesses. Does that include their actions? Absolutely. Both those portrayed in Genesis 19 and also those against the poor and the needy, the downtrodden in their city, but it also includes more than their actions, this haughty and prideful attitude that exists in the city. We, we can't like lean on more heavily on one side or the other there. The issue is a completeness, a wholeness of their sin. If you just go back to the flood account in Genesis, the issue when God brings judgment upon the world is not a single type of sin or a single outworking of sin. Instead, God says that the problem is that every inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. He brings judgment because of the totality or the wholeness of the problem of sin. In this case, there's a completeness to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, so much so that this cry has gone up to him. I think it's important to note here At the end of verse 21, God has not told Abraham what he's going to do. God has simply described the situation that exists in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, though, knows God. They're friends. They just had dinner together. And so Abraham knows what it means for God to interact with this kind of sin with this kind of brokenness. And it's on the basis of God's character that Abraham begins to speak. So in verse 22, the men turn from there, this place overlooking the city of Sodom, and they begin to go toward Sodom while Abraham remains standing there. And in verse 23, you get this incredible imagery that Abraham like steps forward. Like how confident is he in his friendship with God? So much so that his These visitors turned to head towards Sodom and Gomorrah. He'd sort of like slide himself in the way and say, hey, pause, I'd like to have a conversation about that, please. Like that's how confident Abraham is in this friendship covenant relationship that he has with almighty God of the universe that Abraham could say, 
can we talk about what's about to uh, happen here? And then have a conversation about it. I mean, what does Abraham know? Sin demands judgment and that judgment for sin is just. The Garden of Eden, the flood, the Tower of Babel, we've seen that. That God Almighty, he's so powerful that the verbiage that Abraham uses is where you really sweep away like one little flick of the omnipotent wrist of God and he can sweep away the wicked and the righteous with them. Abraham knows that that's who God is. He also knows that God is just and that God being just is one of among the fullness of all of his qualities. And that that means that the righteous people in those cities have to matter to God. Will you really sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? The word for righteous we've mentioned before in this series is tzedakah. So there's this like beautiful auditory Hebrew thing happening in the text that we lose when we get it into English because outcry and righteous sound nothing alike, but zeaka and tzedakah sound very similar. And so the text tells us that the zeaka was great, but what about the tzedakah? And there's like this auditory thing happening. Like, yeah, the outcry is great, but what about the righteous who are there? Why does that matter? Because Abraham knows that God will do what is just. Will the judge of the world not do what is just? Abraham knows God. He knows that God can do nothing other than what is just. And so there's a moral dilemma here, right? Will the righteous suffer the same fate as the wicked? And is that fair? That's a moral dilemma for an ancient Near Eastern person in the same way that it is a moral dilemma for a modern Western person. In previous sermons throughout this Genesis series, we've dealt with the philosophical questions that surround God judging humanity for their sin. You can go back and listen to those, like Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, in that, that window. But now the question that's before us is, what about when the righteous seem to be suffering the same fate as the wicked? Or to put that into more modern terms, what about when bad stuff appears to be happening to good people? What do we do with that? Is it fair I would offer three thoughts to you on the justness of God. The first one is this, that our understanding of God must match the reality of God. Our flesh is conditional in its thinking about who God is. When we think of ourselves, when we think of those that we know and that we love, when we think of those who are like us, maybe even more importantly, when we think of those who sin like us, we are quick to both think about and appeal to God's grace and his mercy and his love. When we think about those who are different than us, or we think about those who we might feel are opposed to us, or again, maybe more importantly, we think about those who sin in different ways than us. Well, then we're quick to think about God's justice. Well, they're gonna get what they deserve. The reality is that God is fully and completely and infinitely all of his qualities. So he is fully and completely and infinitely gracious and merciful in love. And he is fully and completely and infinitely righteous and just and can judge. The great corrective for our sort of conditional thinking is the cross. 
We have to be quick to think about the cross because that is the place where the fullness of justice and mercy meet in its clearest depiction. What you have in the cross is the fullness of God's just, righteous, and holy judgment toward the sin of humanity falling upon Jesus. But you've also got the mercy of the fact that he receives all of that in your place. And so there's the fullness of mercy and grace and love there. And at the cross, those two things shake hands perfectly. The thing about the cross is that that act was not just for me, for those that I know and love, for those who are like me, or for those who sin like me. Jesus' work on the cross is an act that is extended to all who by God's grace would be saved through faith in Jesus. That means it's extended to those who are not like me, those who I do not know, those who would possibly be opposed to me, and those who sin in ways that are wildly different and maybe offensive to me. Our understanding of God must, be, or must match the reality of who God is, and we see that most clearly at the cross. He's the full, complete, infinite display of every single one of his unrivaled qualities, and they come together most beautifully at Calvary. Thought number two, our definitions of good and evil must match God's definitions. Righteousness and wickedness, the words used in our passage, practically need to be defined on his terms, not ours. The definitions of righteousness and wickedness are displayed for us clearly in his character. They're spoken to us clearly in his word. We see them lived out in Jesus the Son. And often when we're evaluating the justness of God, we're doing so on the basis of what we think is good or bad, conditioned by our own culture and by our own thoughts. And so by those standards, we look at a person and we say, good person. And then we look at another person and we say, bad person. And we make a positional attribution to them. They are good. Why would bad stuff ever happen to them? That's not fair, God. They're bad. Why would good stuff ever happen to them? That's not fair, God. And once we attach the label, we then want God to act according to the label that we attached based on our definitions of what is good and bad or righteous and wicked. For Abraham here in the early portion of Genesis, righteousness is positional. Covenant righteousness was credited to Abraham by God's grace through Abraham's faith in a promise, specifically this child that would be born to him and Sarah. Abraham is positionally righteous. Are all of his actions practically righteous? Heavens, no. There's not been a single human being that has lived on this planet outside of Jesus Christ who lived in a practically righteous way in every single thing that they did. Abraham is positionally righteous. The same is true for anyone who's been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. You have positional righteousness. When we do baptisms, we're celebrating an outward expression of the fact that someone has been saved by God's grace and is now positionally righteous before the Lord. And so in the conversation that takes place in Genesis chapter 18, who is Abraham petitioning God on behalf of in Sodom and Gomorrah? 
what if there are 50 people there who have never done anything wrong? Would you save the city for 50 of them? To which God would say, there aren't, move along. What if there are 45? Nope. What if there are 40? Not a chance. How about 10? Still no. But who is Abraham? No lives there. Lot. A member of his household. Covenant relationship there. What if there are 10 people in that city who are positionally righteous before you, Lord? Would you spare the place on behalf of those 10? Yeah, I would. I would not judge the entire city on behalf of those people. When we think about good and bad, righteousness and wickedness, we're thinking about practical righteousness. That's the process of sanctification, right? We grow in our practical righteousness. But when we think of judgment and the justness of God, we want it on practical terms. That person is good. God, it's only fair for you to do good things to them. I've decided that person is bad. God, they deserve bad stuff. But our definitions have to match God's. He treats us positionally while growing us practically. And brother or sister in Christ, you should wake up every single day thankful that he treats you positionally, not practically. Because if he treated you on the basis of your practical righteousness, we would all be in trouble. But he treats you on the basis of positional righteousness. And so the justness of God will ultimately be displayed in his perfect positional judgment of every individual of all of humanity. Covenant righteousness. He's not going to mess that up. Typically what our flesh longs for is judgment that's based on practical righteousness or practical wickedness as we want to define it. But that's messing up the definitions. Just think of the account. Depending on one's viewpoint, and we'll talk more about this next week, we want to emphasize aspects of sin in this passage. God's definition would put equal weight on the whole, both the Genesis 19 description, but also whatever's happening socially to the oppressed and the poor, and whatever attitudes exist in their hearts. We would default to talking about the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah on the practical righteousness level. But Abraham, in the context of Genesis, is praying on behalf of the positional, covenantal, righteous people in those places. We need our instincts to be refined to match God's definitions rather than imposing upon God our definitions. Last, the longevity of our view has to match the longevity of God's view. It's the default of our human finiteness to think in temporal terms. That person is good. They deserve good stuff today. That person is bad. They deserve bad stuff today. But it is the default of God's infinite nature to think in eternal terms. His justness will be perfect on an eternal scale. And from the viewpoint of eternity, we will look back and see that his justness was also perfect on every temporal scale. And at this point in the proceedings this morning, you say to yourself, what does any of this have to do with your questions about prayer? To which I would say, I think now we can try to understand the back and forth that takes place between Abraham and God. Abraham prays boldly out of his covenant friendship. 
Out of that friendship, God shares with Abraham the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah. And out of that same covenant friendship, Abraham steps over in front of the Lord as they're leaving to go to Sodom. And he says, if you would let me speak, even though I am dust and ashes, I recognize my spot before you, but we're friends and we can talk. What if there are 50 people there who are righteous? Would you sweep the city away? Though Abraham knows his place, he does not hesitate to engage with God. Brother or sister in Christ, we can pray boldly out of our friendship with God. And think about that. No matter what the matter is, big or small, related specifically to you or about some global promise that God has in Scripture, you go before him as a friend. And he listens. And you go boldly before him as a friend. You understand your position in relation to the almighty God of the universe. And yet you can go genuinely and honestly and vulnerably and transparently before the very throne of God in conversation with the almighty God of the universe. That's, what, that's, that's like a gift that you have thanks to covenant righteousness and friendship with him. Abraham prays boldly on the basis of God's character. All of Abraham's conversation here has God's character as its starting place. I know that you are just. What do we do about this? Abraham knows the justness of God. And so his question is, is it just for you to sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? Or how many righteous people tip the scale of your justness so that you won't? judge Sodom and Gomorrah. It's all based on God's character, and so the same is true for us. We pray boldly on the basis of God's character. Because of our friendship with God, we can know who he is. He's given us his word so we can know who he is. The son came in the flesh so that we can know who God is. We've got friendship with him, and we can know who he is. And so our prayer, both in its requests and in its expectations, ought to be carried out according to God's character. God, you are blank, Therefore, fill in the blank. This is who you are. And Abraham prays boldly in exploration of God's plans. Oftentimes, Genesis 18 gets like lobbed around in conversations about can a human being change God's mind? And someone says, well, of course they can. What about Genesis chapter 18? God's plan is to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham haggles him down. What if there are 10 people? Would you still destroy it? I would say, uh, go back and read Genesis 18 a hundred times and you tell me if God ever told Abraham what the plan was. It is actually the conversation between Abraham and God that begins to give us some degree of understanding about what might be in store for Sodom and Gomorrah. God looks at Abraham and says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense and their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. Then Abraham says, will you really sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? God does not say, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. I am going to just flatten that place with fire and brimstone. Derek Kidner, commentator, on Genesis, says that the right word for Abraham's prayer is exploring. Abraham is feeling his way forward in a spirit of faith 
and humility. Does Abraham change God's mind? That's the question. I would say no. At no point does God say what his plan is for Sodom and Gomorrah. We come to a degree of understanding by way of Abraham's prayer. And so I would say that the same is true for us, that we can pray boldly in exploration of God's plans. Like you go before him out of your covenant friendship on the basis of his character, and we start to have illuminated for us something of the heart of God. We may not ever see the full picture, but through prayer, we're able to come to a certain degree of understanding about what God is doing. And that happens as we pray out of our friendship with him according to his character. I would add this. As we're praying, God's never revealing something to you that would be contrary to that character. I've been praying to God about a lack of money within our home. He told me to rob a bank. He didn't. Your flesh told you to rob a bank, and you are crossing wires on whether or not that was God or your own plans. You need to spend some more time exploring the Lord's will in prayer. And until what is, you feel subjectively is being revealed to you aligns objectively with what we know of who God is, you don't have it yet. Go back on your knees and spend some more time in prayer. And last, Abraham prays boldly toward the accomplishment of God's plan. Here's the wild part about prayer, that it is the prayer of Abraham that brings about the accomplishment of God's plans. That's the very crux of prayer, that God in his sovereignty plans and purposes to use the prayer of his people, his friends, to bring about the fulfillment of his will. The same is true for us. We pray boldly for the accomplishment of God's plans. We do so not because we think we're somehow forming or changing God's plans, but because we know that God in his sovereignty has chosen to use the prayers of his people to bring about the accomplishment of his will. Why would we pray over these individuals who get baptized? That God would work in and through their lives in powerful ways to make the gospel known. Well, because it could be the very prayers of this room of people that God has sovereignly planned to be the means by which that takes off in a person's life. So why would you not pray? (laughs) Like, why would we do these baby dedications and pray over families and young children and pray that they would come to faith at a young age and that God would use their lives in order to make his goodness and the beauty of the gospel and his glory known. Why, why would we pray to do that? We're not changing God's mind. Why pray? Well, because it very well may be that the prayers of this congregation's worth of people are the sovereign means by which God has planned for the gospel to intersect with that child's life, that they might be saved and then used as an instrument of his glory and his grace out in the world. So why would we not pray? Why would we ever not pray? If God in his wisdom and in his goodness has chosen to use the prayers of his people as a vehicle by which he brings about the accomplishment of his plans, we ought to be praying about everything all the time because we don't ever know when one of those prayers is the thing that God has predetermined to use to bring about his purposes and his plans in his world. And so if I were to distill all of that into like one sort of main point, it would be the following sentence that I recognize has a lot of clauses but they all matter that God has sovereignly chosen to use the prayers of his people to bring about the accomplishment of his purposes according to the fullness of his character. God has sovereignly chosen to use the prayers of his people to bring about the accomplishment of his purposes 
according to the fullness of his character. I'm going to read sort of an extended quote here. It's longer than I would normally quote. And it's a little confusing because inside the quote there are two quotes, but just hang with me on it. It's from an author named Marshall Seagal. He says this, Our great hope in prayer is not to change what God had planned, but to bring about what God has planned. We do not strive to change the heart of God, but to draw his heart out in our circumstances. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, says Martin Luther, but laying hold of his willingness. When we pray, we do not change the mind of God as if he might have chosen wrongly. We act out the infinite wisdom of God in the midst of all the brokenness in front of us, and we welcome the inscrutable goodness he had always planned to do through our prayers. A.W. Pink warns us, there is no need whatsoever for God to change his designs or alter his purposes. For the all-sufficient reason that these were framed under the influence of perfect goodness and unerring wisdom. To affirm that God changes his purpose is either to impugn his goodness or to deny his eternal wisdom. Here then is the design of prayer. Not that God's will may be altered, but that it may be accomplished in his own good time and way. Prayer is not an afterthought in God's plan. Prayer is not a plan B or a spare tire in case life breaks down. Under God, prayer runs the world. For sure, God does countless miracles in the world every day that no one ever mentions specifically in prayer. However, he does some of his most important work in the world and in our lives precisely because one of his children asked him to do it. So I'll go back to the passage from James that we started with. The prayers of a righteous person are very powerful in their effect. My favorite hymn is Before the Throne of God. The very first line of that hymn is Before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea. Stop there. If the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective, and scripture tells me that I'm hidden in Christ and that Christ is at the right hand of God interceding on my behalf, is the issue ever the righteousness of the one through whom the prayers are channeled? It can't be. He is perfectly righteous, interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God. We've got positional righteousness that's in him. We've got a practical righteousness that's growing because of him. So when we come before the Lord to pray, we can trust that our prayers are powerful and effective indeed, but our definition of effective has to match God's. Does this mean that we will get what we want every time we pray? No. Our prayers being powerful and effective means that our prayers will accomplish that which God purposes. So the prayers of a righteous person are powerful in their effect and that they will always certainly bring about the accomplishment of God's sovereign will. So why would you not pray? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and your word. God, my, my prayer is that your spirit would make us a praying people. God, that you would just lay hold of our hearts, 
so that we are a people who pray fervently out of our friendship with you on the basis of your character, that we might know something about your plans and pray toward the fulfillment of them. God, would we be a people who pray fervently for the lost around us? Would we be a people who pray fervently for those who have no access to the gospel around the world? Would we be a people who pray fervently about the little, tiny, minute details in our lives? Would we be people who pray fervently about the stuff that we feel like is impossible to possibly change? God, would we be a people who pray fervently for the good of this world worked out in and through your church for the glory of the gospel? God, would we be people who pray fervently? God, just drop us to our knees in prayer all the time about that which feels tiny and insignificant, but also that which feels so grand and so impossible that we don't think it could ever happen. God, make us people who pray. God, give us a boldness in our prayer. According to your grace, you call us friends. So would we come boldly into your presence? Pray according to your character. Have hearts that are humble and soft and open to understanding what it is that we can about your plans. And then God, would you make us tenacious prayers toward the accomplishment of your will? God, would you do that for your good and for your, or for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, thanks for being here with us this morning. One quick thing before you go. Next weekend, we're doing a food drive um, that will benefit in as much ministry. Holidays are coming. Uh, a lot of people utilize that food pantry in order to be able not just to eat, but also to be able to celebrate holidays with food. And so we want to just like load them up over there. So Saturday, there'll be a truck here in the parking lot from 9 to 11 a.m. that you can come and just drop stuff off. If you can't make it on Saturday, bring it here on Sunday. We'll put it all in the youth center and we will take care of getting it over to in as much uh, during next week. So next weekend, uh, a food drive. Uh, we'd like to just really bless in as much ministries and the, and the people who utilize it. So that's it. Thank you. We love you guys. Thanks for celebrating with us today. Have a great week.